I'm Heather McElhatton, and on this edition of A Beautiful World, I talk to author and journalist Heather Lendy about her new book titled Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer. Haynes, if you imagine uh, like what Switzerland might look like on with a beach, we have great big mountains that go up, and they look like the Alps, and then there's uh, big deep fjords and rivers and inlets, so that's where it sits, and Haynes is on a little peninsula that pokes out into the fjord. Um, the town itself is uh, little. <laughs> There's a main street with sort of 1950s-style buildings on them that are in various stages of disrepair. We're working on downtown revitalization, but it's, it's a little bit um, rough around the edges. We also have on a hill opposite the main street a one of the original army bases in Alaska that was built at the turn of the century, and they're beautiful, big, white, federal-style buildings, um, Fort William H. Seward. And that's kind of our iconic postcard shot. And at the bottom of the hill from the fort, there's a cruise ship dock, and the ships come here once a week. That's the backdrop of Haines. And then um, there's uh, a couple little roads that go out where people live. Um, I live on one of them out around the corner. Describe to me the people who live there. The people that live in Haines, there's about the original people who were here, the Clinkett Indians, Alaska Natives, um, are still here. And there's about a quarter of the population is Clinkett. And then we also have uh, many transplants, people who come from all over the world for one reason or another, um, we have a, a group that my mother uh, used to refer to fondly as the aging hippies. Um, long, long hair, long gray hair on, on men and women. Um, we have fishermen. We have shopkeepers. We have state workers. We have a lot of artists. There's probably more artists per capita, they say, than any other small town. But Haines is a little like that. We we're kind of the opposite of of Lake Wobegon. We think we're very special, <laughs> and so we're always like. The, the best small town in America. We have the best library in America. We have a lot of little babies, uh, young families with little babies, and we have a lot of really active, very old people. It sounds like an incredibly wide demographic. Of, of all those different kinds of people, what's the, what's the one thing that attracts people to Haines? What is it about you all that is why you're all there? I think, first of all, it's the, the beauty of the place. You know, it's just a spectacularly beautiful place. And when you, once you've been here and and even visited, you try to, some people who, who are drawn to it anyway, try to figure out a way to stay here. So I think that's that's huge. But I think the the second part is probably the community. Having a a small town where you don't have to lock your doors. We keep our keys in the car. Um, everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, uh, all the stores in Haines are locally owned. You know, the grocery store is Old Root store. Um, you can't drive to a Costco or a Walmart. We have a bookstore on Main Street. We're all kind of hanging on by our fingernails in, in some ways, but we still have the kind of town that people are, are, I think, a little nostalgic for. It sounds like it's people who don't necessarily value material things first, but that it's, it's a community of people who value a way of life more Absolutely. We, we had a, an, old, an old gal that, um, that 
that started our museum here, Elizabeth Hackinen, and she's since died, but she used to say when people say, well, what do, what do people do in Haines to make a living? And she said, well, pretty much um, you do whatever you can. You like to live here first, and then you figure out a way to stay. So people here aren't uh, defined so much by their jobs or by their career particularly, and there's probably not a lot of people with what you'd call a career, aside from maybe some school teachers and a doctor at the clinic, some of those things. We don't have like lawyers or architects or engineers or basically everybody just sort of does what they can, and there's a lot of seasonal work. And that and that must be one of the reasons you've developed this ability to sum up a person's life in the way that you in the way that you do because you're not relying on conventional success markers. They were a lawyer who built this or did that. You're reaching down deeper to describe people. Maybe so. You know, I've never really thought about it that way. But but I I I, I suppose so. We look at people whether I'm writing about uh, someone who's been a clerk at the grocery store or a bartender or the superintendent of schools, it's they pretty much get the same um uh, respect for for what they've done, if that's the correct word, or sort of a reverence for whatever life they've led and what good they've done and how they've contributed to the community in some way. Tell me about your book, if you could give me the 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 single paragraph that distills it first. Well, I, I think basically it's how um, writing obituaries in a in a small town and raising a family has uh, taught me. Uh, to find the good in in people and in situations where it's not always uh, obvious. When did you start writing obits? I've been writing them since 1996. And how did you get that assignment? I got that assignment because I was writing the uh, social column for our paper, the Chilkat Valley News is our weekly newspaper, and it too is the best small weekly in Alaska, and I was writing that for the paper, and uh, there was an elderly lady who was sick, and she she knew she was dying, and at the time, the newspaper had just hired a new reporter, and um, he was a, a big city guy, and he, uh, he, he tended to, he rubbed some people the wrong way, and she didn't like him at all, and she didn't want him writing her obituary, so she requested me, and the editor said, sure, I mean, if Heather writes about live people, she could probably write about dead people, and it's kind of the same thing, and um, nobody else wanted to do it. And so I wrote that one, and I, I didn't actually write it so much because she had written it. She had left pretty much detailed instructions about not not so much her story, but things like you know her mother's maiden name, her date of birth. She sort of set up the template uh, along with the newspaper, but we've just been sort of following her guidelines, at least I have, pretty much ever since. And then what happened was I just had time to do them and I've just ended up doing them ever since then. And how do you how did you feel about writing those first obituaries? It seems to me that it, it it's a great responsibility. Yeah, it's huge. And um I was a little uh I guess I was younger, so I probably I was bolder then than I am now. And um but again the the newspaper had sort of a a format for them, um, and they'd always done them this way, where when someone dies here, it's a story. So they're sort of half obituary, half profile. And you would quote people about them, ask questions about them. I learned early on, mainly because I'm not a, 
um, like a hard-hitting journalist type, um, and I hadn't had that kind of training, that I would, um, and I knew the people, so that even if somebody was a little bit grumpy or had had, uh, I I didn't try to make them into a saint, but I would get someone who knew them to say the thing that everybody knew about them, but it would be able to be in a nice way if that makes any sense. And you've got so many great examples in the book. Can you tell me one of them? Tell me a story about an obituary you had to write about somebody where it wasn't immediately obvious what you were going to say. Well, um, somebody like Clyde Bell, um, who ran the seafood store and who, you know, he, he stood on the sidewalk a lot and was sort of always nursing a ham's beer and um, had a lot of uh, ideas about conspiracy theories. Um, his wife is a real hard worker. His mother was a real hard worker. And Clyde, he was more of a socializer. And yet um, he really had a big impact on the community because he was just always around and always there. So writing Clyde's obituary, we didn't focus so much on what he did for work or not, <laughs> but um, the things that he did for other people that they started telling me after he he died. Things like he gave away more flowers than his wife sold. His wife had a flower shop and he had a seafood shop, which is a novel, you know, <laughs> next door to each other. But um, they, they, people would tell me that Clyde would show up at their house with flowers on an anniversary after he knew that, you know, their, their husband had died, um, you know, a couple years earlier. He would remember the anniversary for them and just hand them the flowers and kind of grumpy and go away and that kind of thing happened after he died. We learned a lot of that. and So, so that, you didn't know that before he died? No, not really. He, he never said anything about it, and people didn't say anything. And then, and it was a private sort of thing he did. And then after he died, people started coming forward and saying these things that had happened. And um, it was nice. You know, that's a great thing to put in an obituary. Another one um, uh, is a guy who... You know, again, had a big funeral. I'm thinking um, Art Jess was a native elder uh, here. He was a, a great orator, and he spoke at all kind of community gatherings. And he was very learned. You know, he was always quoting scripture or uh, philosophers or poetry even, and old uh, statesmen of some kind. You know, he'd quote Thomas Jefferson or John Adams or whatever. And after he died, his wife told me that he couldn't read or write. And nobody in town had known that. And it turns out that his listening skills um, were developed because he was severely dyslexic as a child. And he just learned to, his wife would read to him, and he'd remember what she said. And that, that was like his greatest strength. You know, so that became the focus of his obituary, not the, you know, how many years he worked for the state or that he got to go to Arizona to help develop some parts for Caterpillar or something when he was in his 50s. It was this gift he had for oratory and how it came out of um, actually uh, uh, something that other people might consider a disability. So I, I've written one for a guy who um, uh, was a, uh, owned a hotel here and did a lot for tourism back in the day and was really a mover and a shaker. And then he ended up um, drinking very heavily and he died of basically alcohol abuse at 50. And he had this, you know, soaring life and a, and a, a really pretty dramatic crash and that was part of the story you couldn't talk about his life without like wow what happened kind of thing but we decided talking with his family and his brother to 
highlight all of his accomplishments and all of the things he did for the community and all the good things. And then at the end, there was, you know, his brother said, unfortunately, alcohol for Arnie was, uh, it might as well have been poison. He he couldn't shake it, and we and we tried, but it is what it is. It seems like telling the whole story is also important to you, you know, both sides. Not not sugarcoating it, but going ahead and, and saying how, how the death occurred, how someone ended their life. Yeah, and again, it's not, you know, it's not just me. I don't have, I mean, I work for uh, the newspaper editor, my friend Tom, and granted the paper's only like three of us or four, but um, he's pretty adamant. He, he's very funny. I mean, he's, he's very, I've worked with him for years, and he's a friend of mine, and we're kind of opposites, you know. He's cloudy and I'm sunny. And um, uh, he's the one that insists always on a cause of death. Because he said, if we're if we're going to cover this, we need to say how the person died, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we don't, I don't have to look at a gift certificate, but I ask, and this is a funny story because we've had these big debates about old age. You know, I'll say, Tom, the woman was like 98. She died in bed. She hadn't been to a doctor in 30 years. I think it's old age. The family says old age, and he'd say, No, it's got to be something. And we go around and around and have these debates about it, and. And um, and then what happened was an, an older guy um, died who was very old, and the family said, just say old age. And I said, I'm sitting there in the kitchen with the big sons. They were big, burly guys, and they were um, fishermen, and um, they had a rock-crushing operation. Anyway, um, they they said to me, no, he died of old That's what we're going to say. He died of old age. You don't need to know. He had all these different sicknesses that just caught up with him. I said, well, Tom is going to insist that we say something. Could you just pick one of them and I'll just use it? No. And, you know, so, but, but I think he's right because I think when I read obituaries and other papers or ones that, you know, the family has written, especially, I'm always trying to figure out what the person died of. I mean, if somebody was only 50 and they died, how can that be natural causes? Or maybe it can be. Did they, were they born with congenital heart failure? Was there something like that going on? But, you know, in general, or if someone lives to be very old, what was it that they finally succumbed to? I mean, if it's if you're going to put something in the paper that people are going to read, I mean, I think you have an obligation to tell them something more than they already know. And especially in a small town, you know, there's rumors or people hear what it is, and then it's important in the paper to kind of get it right, I think. But I sense something more with you. I sense there's something else in this. It's... I'm. I'm grasping for the right words here, but it's almost like these obits are jewels or gems that you carefully create settings for so that we can kind of get our heads around a, a person's life, you know, in, in the span of an, of an article. And it's almost, there's love involved in what you do. It's not just the duty to let people know what happened. There's something more, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's the only reason I do them. I mean, I get $75 for each one and a lot of arguing with Tom about it. <laughs> And I do them because um, I just, I think it's important to honor um, just ordinary people who who lead these lives that aren't of quiet desperation. They're actually of, you know, really inspiring. And I think, I think it's, it's my job to kind of, to, to find out what, you know, what made this person tick and what they left us that we can learn from. Because I think that's, that's what teaches people how to live. I mean, I suppose novels do, but a lot of people don't read novels, but everybody reads the obituaries. And and so if you tell a little story about a life with some 
I don't know, some sadness and some joy and a little redemption, a little forgiveness, which almost every life has, then someone reading that will think, well, they're okay if they've stumbled a little bit. It's not the end of the world. Or if they didn't have that great job or if something bad has happened to them. It's bad, bad things happen to people all the time, and they bounce back and go on to sing in a choir or, you know, be on the city council or, uh, I don't know, become a terrific grandfather when they hadn't been such a good dad. I, I think that's okay. I think what I'm hearing you say is that obituaries can give hope. I think so. I think completely. I, I think, you know, if you read about someone else's life and they've made something of it, you know, in their own kind of way, it it makes you think that maybe you could. I mean, half the time after I'm done with one, I, I and I know the person, I wish that I'd known him a little better or had a conversation about something. I mean, I wrote one for this lady um, that I didn't know very well, but her daughter makes um, homemade um, dog food uh, in town. She She makes this dog food that she brings around and my dogs eat it and it's, you know, out of ground up fish and kale and stuff. And, and, uh, so she makes dog food and the mom was, um, she was very involved in the animal rescue kennel. They're big animal dog and cat people and drive around in a car full of dogs barking and, you know, always have little homemade dog treats and stuff. And, um, I knew Maxine Rudd was her name as, as the gal that was riding around with Carrie in the car, always covered with dog hair and, kind of a little, you know, eccentric. And when I was writing her obituary, I found out that she had grown up in California and her dad was a pilot and had taught her how to fly planes when she was very young. She flew across the country on little planes. She did all this stuff so that when World War II happened, she ended up uh, wanting to be a pilot. She enlisted in the service and women couldn't fly. And she um, became a marine flight instructor. This was Maxine Rudd, like the lady driving around in the car with all the dogs. I, I would never in a million years have thought that. And I thought, boy, we should have done a feature on her when she was alive to hear about that instead of just after the fact. And so why is it that you want to help teach people how to live or how to get through their lives? I mean, what, what's behind that, that, that urge for you? I look at my my um like my grandchildren now and i see how the you know the newspapers are all kind of becoming homogenized a little bit and and the news is a lot of the same or it's coming off of facebook or whatever and the lives that they are hearing about are either um really uh kind of strange and sad and tragic things that make the news or they're all these celebrities or everybody's sort of the same and I think it's important to chronicle the lives of regular people because most of us are just regular people. And and it helps us feel um, like like that's okay in a world where what's coming from certainly the mass media um, would make us think maybe we're not successful if, you know, our skin isn't perfect or our children aren't all um, doctors and lawyers or we're not rich or driving a new car. I, I, I don't know. And it seems like I write about plenty of successful people who don't fit the definition of anybody that's ever been on television. I, I think it's successful to be an elementary school teacher married to a, a janitor that raises two nice kids, you know, that maybe one goes to college and, and becomes a, a, a nurse and the other one um, becomes a fisherman. 
and you know they coach little league and they maybe go to church on Sunday or or maybe they don't or they um, uh, uh, you know say hello to the neighbors they bring a casserole at a funeral I mean I think that's I think that's worthy of praise. Why? Because I think it's what makes us human. You know, it connects us one to one, heart to heart communities. It's all about, I guess, the the real relationships we make in life, not the ones that are um, uh, just for show, but but what count. I mean, doing nice things for people that you have nothing to gain from by being nice to them is, is I think, what saves us as a. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too highfalutin here, but you know, just as a culture, as a society. Well, you. Just... I often think when I mean, if I watch those Sunday morning news shows when everybody's screaming at each other, I think if they lived in a small town and had to sit next to each other in the bleachers after what they have just said about either each other or their someone in their family or something, you you can't talk like that when you're all sort of dependent on each other. Right. And in the grand scheme of things, we are all dependent on each other. But somehow, the what what the kids see and hear out there is they might not think so. And when you read all those comments in the paper that people write, on, you know, online after something, and and they don't have to use their name, and they just say really mean things, and you think, really? Would you stand in a room and look at somebody and say that? Would you say that in front of your kids? And I think people have gotten so disconnected that they think that's the way to attract attention. Is to say bad stuff and or do dramatic things, and I guess I think people who say good things and aren't particularly dramatic should get some attention because I'd rather be around, hang around with them. <laughs> I mean, those are the people that we we depend on, and and you know I I've just been traveling. I'm not a great traveler, but I so appreciate a, you know a clerk at the airline counter who's going to get me to the right gate on time and points me, takes a minute and shows me which way to go. I mean, didn't have to do that. And it's at that moment, it's like they're throwing you a life ring when you're in the middle of a crowded airport that you've never been in before. And it happens to people every day. And I, I write about the kind of people that do that sort of stuff. What about the really sad stories, like the suicides? Uh, those are the hardest ones, and we have, you know, Alaska has that. Um, and how, how, how have you learned to, to handle that? Well, what we do, um, first of all, is that, um, and this is hard, uh, is that when it happens uh, in, in Haines, um, it's often a news story. And I don't write the news story. Tom does. But, and, and of course, family and friends and coworkers, everybody's pretty traumatized. Um, but also, um, we really want to have the obituary in the same paper as the story. And so... When I go visit the family, then those are the ones that I don't say the cause of death in because the cause of death is probably on the front page. And then people can read the details of that or as little as much as Tom is going to put in or the trooper releases or whatever. And um, and then I can concentrate on the obituary on the good part of their lives. And I feel with those stories mostly um, I'm more like a grief counselor and I'm helping the people I talk with, but I'm also helping the rest of the community to try to cope with it a little bit by letting them remember the the good parts of a person. And also in those obituaries, um, we sometimes kind of veer into what wouldn't quite be obituary territory where there'll be 
someone actually talking about, you know, that they, they wish they could have helped the person, but they weren't able to, or they, they always knew, you know, there was he was just fighting demons and we did the best we could, but it was a matter of time, you know, things like that. Or that he was in a lot of pain. It turns out they had a lot of injuries that were left over from childhood surgeries and, you know, things things that in a way explain it or might make people feel better who weren't as close to them as a family or a close friend or a spouse even. And they'll, and they'll say those kind of things that in a way are, well, in a very real way are healing. I think if... Um if I recall in the excerpt I read of the book that, you know, you were at the house of a family whose son had commi- committed suicide and you were trying to extract, you know, find the good in his life and the parents were arguing and you thought, you know, oh, this isn't working. And then the grandmother came in. Yeah, that was actually a, a little different story. The boys had died. Those those boys had died in a canoe that turned over. Ah, a um, canoe. Okay. Yeah, but um, that was really sad, and in a way, it was suicidal. I mean, they went out on the fjord in on May on a very rough and windy, cold day, and they had no business being out there, and they didn't have life jackets, and they were going to go to Skagway, and uh, it was, you know, it was tragic all the way around. And, How old um, were and they? They were uh, high school, like juniors and seniors, I think, 17. Um, there were three boys. One, one made it back but two, two didn't. And um, that one, uh, the parents had, that was very, very hard. And it was Mother's Day. Um, I had to go meet with the family, and um, they were, uh, the parents had, had separated, oh, maybe three months before, and they were getting a divorce. And, and so the dad was there with his new girlfriend, and the mom was there, and she was leaving and packing up and had come to town, had been in town to get her things and move with the daughter and um you know so it was already really full of emotion and and the parents were arguing and every question I asked they disagree with each other and I just didn't know what to do I mean it was so sad and awful and um and then the the grandmother uh who was from out of town an elderly lady came out from the kitchen and she had um tea and cookies and insisted I was getting ready to leave and saying thank you very much, and she insisted that, you know, I stay, and it was pretty quiet. Well, everybody took their tea and kind of crunched, and and then um, she started talking about him, her, her grandson. You know, she said he had a dog and that he played the piano, and, you know, he would played on the basketball team, and all of a sudden, you know, everybody started crying and talking, and we, we filled enough to make a, a nice obituary for him. But sometimes you just have to wait a while, and you need maybe somebody else to uh, help. Is that something that you've come to find out as you've been writing the obituaries, that a tragic ending does not create a tragic life? I learned that uh, almost in in one of the earlier ones that I'd written, um, that um, I learned it from, you know, the stuff I know, I don't don't think that what I write about anybody else who, who... wasn't exposed to, to, to writing about people and knowing them and, and writing as many obituaries as I have wouldn't notice the same things. I mean, they're basically kind of affirmations of what we, we kind of know in our hearts but that we don't always do. And I, so I, I feel like that a lot. And like the one I wrote uh, way back, I wrote one after a, uh, it was a fishing boat accident and a, and a young man um, 
uh, drowned um, diving for a life raft and as the boat was sinking. And uh, two of his brothers and a friend were rescued by the Coast Guard, and he was never found. And um, he was the youngest, and he was 20. And his mother uh, was one of my best friends, Becky. And, I mean, it, it, it totally wiped us all out, you know. And the whole community was um, just devastated by it because you had to both celebrate that that they saved three of them, but then you had lost somebody. And, like, what do you do in that situation? And um, and Becky, uh, and I don't know how she did it, but um, she stood up at his, uh, they had a memorial service, you know, at the Presbyterian Church, and then they had a party at the Alaska Native Brotherhood Hall across the, the street from the church afterwards. And um, and Becky stood up and she said she everybody was kind of silent. Nobody knew what to do. She wanted us to, you know, eat, and and everybody was feeling very blue. And she said, um, she said, look, you know, um, Olin lived for 20 years, but he died in a minute. I don't want his death to be how we remember him. And um, and I I always I think about that now a lot, especially when young people die or when there's a tragedy. You don't want how it ended to define it. You want all the days up to it. I mean, you don't. I mean, everybody knows that a, a, a baseball game, it's not about the last inning. It's not the last out. It's its all the plays up to that moment, all nine innings, and, and that's the same in, in a life. It's the very same thing. I wanted to get a better picture of, of your life outside of the newspaper at home there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know a single Alaskan that doesn't have about 25 hobbies that they're actually incredibly good at. So what else do you do, you know, at home? Do you enjoy well, uh, well, I have I have a dog that I'm I'm very attached to, and I spend a lot of time with. I um, I have a garden, which most Alaskans do. I have a couple of chickens that I like. Um, I also I volunteer at the local radio station. I do a country music show on Thursday afternoons. I'm a hospice of Haynes volunteer. I I sit with people when they're dying, um, and I have um, I have five kids. And I have four grandchildren, uh, five grandchildren. Sorry, James was born in October, but four that live in Haines. Being a, a hospice volunteer, does that give you a chance to help write obits ahead of time? <laughs> no, that's like what Tom always says. That now I'm just trying to get in so I know who's <laughs> who's dying. Um, uh, no, I just I just realized that a lot of what I do writing obituaries is kind of grief counseling, and so I got involved in hospice, and then I took the. I took the training. I actually had had I had a very bad accident in uh, 2005, so it was 10 years ago, right? And um, and I I was uh, run over by a truck and I was hurt really badly. And I ended up in a nursing home in Seattle. And um, I I was so um, impressed by the people who took care of me. I mean, complete strangers that were so kind to me. And I was so suddenly um, incapacitated, and it was shocking and. Um, embarrassing in a way and humbling and you were just like oh my gosh how did how did this happen that suddenly i'm the person in the wheelchair you know in the airport that people are looking away from and um and i i started to um think well after that had happened to me i would i could i could sort of pay it back in a karmic way by helping other people when they were in that situation so that's when i started i took the the local training and um became a hospice volunteer because I'm okay with helping people, you know, need to go to the bathroom or or whatever. I can help them get in and out of bed or um, do those kind of things that um, 
people did with me, and I know how hard it is to take the help and how appreciative you are of someone that will do that. Have you thought about your own obituary? You know, everybody, people have been asking me that a lot lately, and no, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think they're that important. I write them, but I think it's more the the life that has been that you're leading. I mean, that's your obituary. I think almost anybody could could write a good one, whether and it might not be true, <laughs> but it's. Um, I don't think it's so much about what's written, and of course, it can't cover everything. So um, oh, I that, don't. I guess I am very thrown by that. I thought for sure. I mean, I guess other people must if they're asking you as well. But you know, here's something that you're known for what you do. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of like cobblers' children's don't never have shoes? Is it like you maybe? Just... I, I don't know. My husband owns a lumberyard, and um, you know, my the little handle on our toilet falls off every time you flush it. So maybe it's not the same thing. <laughs> well, can, can, yeah. can I prod you right now and ask you? What would you want people to remember about you? What are the what are the highlights or the bullet points or the core ideas? What what do you want people to know about you? Oh geez. Um I I guess I would I would I would like people to know that I was a a, a good wife and a good mother and a good grandmother and that um uh I also um wrote a couple of books about a small place and the people that lived there uh, you know maybe maybe something like that that i i was um i made a difference you know that my life mattered in some way to the people that matter the most to me it seems like what one thing that your obits illustrate is how it's the little details that illuminate the divine yes or prove it you know it's the it's the idea of that. I mean, maybe I think I I think that would be neat if if that's what people get from it. But I do believe that. I think it is. I mean, God is in the details. Yeah. I think that's true, and um and I think it's really important to be as specific as possible. And I also and I think that's true, whether it's an obituary or anything you write and um or say, and um. And I think that the more specific I am, and this is weird or counterintuitive, the more, um, the more um, universal in a way the stories are, where when you're sort of general, they don't hit as hard. They, people don't connect as much. And so the, the more specific details that I share about a person's life, the more people are moved by it, instead of just saying they were nice. If you say, um, you know, she sent, every time anybody left town for um, a little trip, she sent them a card with a, a $5 bill in it for traveling money. <laughs> you know, that's, that's nice. What's the big thing that writing obituaries has taught you? I think the biggest thing is, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. I think, I think the biggest thing is that um, it, it's taught me that, I mean, I shouldn't waste my time. It, it'd be almost disrespectful to all the people that I've written about, I mean, some 400 of them, if when I got up in the morning, I was complaining or grumpy, you know? And I, I, th- I feel very strongly about that, that almost to, to behave badly or to slouch away my life um, would, would somehow demean um, theirs and, and the legacy they've left. I mean, every time somebody dies... 
anybody around them says, you know, they just wish they had another day. You know, they wish they had more time. And I have time still. And maybe because I had my own brush with death, but I think a lot of us have had something by the time you reach 55. You know, we've all been hit by a proverbial truck of some kind. And I think every day is, it's not corny to say that each day counts because you just don't know. I mean, you you can be here one day and gone tomorrow, and I know that in a in a way that's uh, very real and and um, stares me in the face uh, on a fairly regular basis. And yet, it seems to inspire you, not scare you. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't I don't think it scares me because it seems so normal, um, a part of you know life and death. It's all one big loop. It's how it is, and. Um, so, uh, no, I, I don't think it, it particularly frightens me. I think it does inspire me. It makes me think, wow, I'm, I'm lucky to be here, and what am I going to do with today? And, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a saint by any means. I, I get grumpy and angry and cry and throw things, and, but I, I sort of have this little voice on my shoulder that says, oh, cut it out. You know, there's a, an old... A friend of mine, very old, well, she's 80-something, 86 or 87, and we swim at the pool in the morning. And every time I see her, Joni, she walks from the senior housing where she lives. She walks across and down to the pool, and she comes in every morning, and I say, Joni, how are you doing today? And she always says, well, I'm here, so it's a good day. <laughs> and I think, right, and I'm here too, so it better be a good day. Do you have any thoughts on the afterlife yourself? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a churchgoer, and um, so I'd like to think uh, that there's uh, heaven, um, but I'm not sure. And um, so I think, I guess for me, and this is, I don't know if this sounds crazy or not, but I tend to think that whenever I'm writing about people or I'm talking about somebody or I'm even remembering something like my mother said, and my mother died about 10 years ago, that, that they're near somehow and that the, um, the immortality or the eternal life lives on in what we remember about them. And, and maybe, I mean, maybe that's why I think I spend so much time writing obituaries because in that way I've, I've helped give someone a little ticket to heaven. It makes so much sense to me. It's almost like you're you're using your research skills, your writing skills, your story skills to dive into each life and find out what was worthy about that person, almost as a testimony for, on their behalf. Yeah, to me, exactly. You know, I had an old uh, friend of mine was a, a Catholic priest named Father Blaney who used to be the, the priest in Haynes, and he was a very... Um, kind of old-school Catholic priest from Boston and who talked with the Boston accent, always wore his collar, always showed up at everything, rode his bicycle around town, big, loud talker, big voice. You always knew he was in the room. And um, there was a man that died that I wrote about in a uh, cabin fire. His uh, stove blew up when he was throwing fuel on it to get it to light and um, on a wood stove. It was a bad mistake. And... Um, he ended up uh, dying of his burns, and he was a very popular guy, very funny. Um, he, he had a, um, a fishing boat that was named the Reluctant because he was a reluctant 
commercial fisherman, but he had to go out there and make a living. Um, anyway, um, when he died, there was some people in town who were um, uh, friends of his who were of the uh, uh, denominations that believe that unless you've um, accepted Jesus, that you won't go to heaven. And um, they were concerned about this with uh, Gene because he wasn't a churchgoer. Um, but everybody acknowledged he was a really good guy. And so I asked Father Blaney about that. I said, what do you think? You know, how does, how does all this stuff work, Father? Figuring that he would give me an answer that um, might help. And he said to me that when when your time is up and uh, you meet St. Peter at the gate, he's going to ask you one question. Have you been good to God's people? And if you can answer yes, you've got it made. And so maybe when every time I'm writing an obituary, I try to find some place in that life where that person was good. I guess if I can find one thing in a person's life, one moment that I can write down when they were good to somebody, I try to do it. And so I I try to consciously find the good in a life, and, and maybe it comes from that that little piece of wisdom from Father Blaney. Maybe I, I want to make sure that it's documented so that person can um, be eternal in some way, whether it's in our hearts or somewhere else. Wow. It's like an appeal to the angels. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not like, I, I wouldn't want to say that I, I, I have an in with them or anything, but I feel like, you know, that's a nice thing to do for somebody, to acknowledge when they were nice to someone. And usually people don't. You know, they always say, oh, it's nothing. I didn't, you know, that's not that's not for my obituary, right? That I, I don't know what college I graduated from, but I, I think it's more important to say that Clyde gave away more flowers than Doris sold. What's one thing you want people to walk away with after they read your book? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope they feel, I hope people feel like it was worth reading. And I think, I hope that people realize that there are choices every day about the way we live um, and that we we don't always have a choice about the circumstances. We, we don't always have a choice about where we work or what happens to people that we love, but we always have a choice in in our response to it and that you can teach yourself to, to respond well. Um, I, I have uh, a friend who does hospice um, work uh, in Fairbanks, not here, and she's an older gal, and I asked her how she does it all the time. And they're, they're much busier there. It's a bigger city than Haynes is. And, and she has to go from person to person, I mean, all the time. And I, I said, how do, you, how do you do that? And she said she, when she stands at the doorway and she's going to go in the room with somebody who's dying, she tells herself, it's good that I'm here. And then she said, I make it so. And I think everybody's dying. We're all in hospice. I mean, not to be glib about it, but nobody gets out of this world alive. I mean, that's not a, that's not a joke. It's true. And so why not say, it's good that I'm here and make it so and treat everybody around you as if they might need you? So what if you have a situation, you know, a bad situation, dark or heavy? Do you have any steps you take internally yourself? You might not have even thought this out, but, like, how do you find the good? 
You know, I I, ha- I had I once asked this of a uh, an Episcopal bishop that I got to meet, and he um, uh, worked in prison ministries, and he dealt with um, like child molesters. I mean, people who had done really terrible things to the most innocent among us. And and being a bishop, I said to him, Well, how how can you like love them, really? I mean, do you really, or do you just say that? And um, he told me that he starts with something very, very small, like really small. Like he notices that um, there's a a book on the shelf that they're reading, and he thinks, oh, they're reading. I like readers. And he tries to do that. He doesn't start with the the big picture, but he tries if he can find one little thing in that person that he likes or that he can live with, that that opens a little window to some sort of respect and and maybe reconciliation and so sometimes when it's when it's pretty dark i'll try to remember that if there's someone that i'm really having a hard time with and um i'm going to do the obituary but uh one of his relatives is there with his dog and the dog is sad that they're gone i think well he was he was nice to his dog and i like dogs and so then i can kind of go from there when i'm asking the questions you're almost saying hunt, hunt, go hunting for it. Yeah, I think you have to look for it. I don't think it's going to come. I think it's. I don't think it's going to come to you. Um, I think the bad comes right to us. I mean, I don't know. We're very good at spotting everything that's wrong, but uh, sometimes the good you have to train yourself to look for it, and it's not always um, right up front. There's a, you know. Um, I I do the country show on the radio, and I like to listen to different music. And there's a new. Uh, uh, there's a new album out by Lucinda Williams, and her father uh, is a poet named M- Miller Williams. And um, one of the, um, I think the title of the album is uh, Compassion. I think that's the title, and it's also a poem that she quotes in it. And he talks about um, uh, show compassion to everyone you meet, because he said you don't know, I'm not quoting it completely, but it's something along the lines is that you don't know what, what kind of pain or what is actually going on when you get right down close to the bone. And I think that's a good thing to remember, that a lot of people that are uh, seem to be just awful, there's something going on close to the bone and you don't know. And it's certainly not going to hurt anything or make it worse by being nice to them. So I have one final question for you. But what's your idea of a beautiful world? Oh, boy. Um... I think my idea of a beautiful world would be one where um, uh, everybody followed the golden rule, you know, treated each other the way we'd want to be treated ourselves. And I think that would that would go a long way toward making the beautiful. And I also think, and and this is you know the title of my book, but I think if 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 we all consciously tried to find the good. I'm not saying ignored the bad, but tried to find the good in each other and in situations. That could make the world a lot more beautiful. And the thing is, it's like doable. Those are things that are doable. We might not be able to solve, you know, the great big problems, stop wars or climate change or little children from being harmed. But if we start by finding the good in the people and situations that we're all close to, I think it could have a ripple effect, and I think it could make a beautiful world. Writing Tickets to Heaven 
and making a final appeal to the angels, one obituary at a time. Heather Lindy's book shows us that finding the good in people and situations can give us a better life right now and a better story to tell after we're gone. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. <laughs>